Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show on the, whatever day. I have no idea what day it is. It's Wednesday, I think. Uh, this we're, we're now getting to the point of the year where no one has any idea what day or time it is. Uh, at a certain point, we'll all just be in that weird twilight period between Christmas and New Year's in which we really have no idea if we are even still alive. But we're not quite there yet. It's Wednesday, December something or other. It doesn't really matter too much. I know most of you have probably listened to the podcast anyway, in which uh, who am I to presume that you are listening to it on the day that I am recording it on? So with that out of the way, I will say it is the finale of COP28, which is the uh, big giant climate confab in Dubai. Now, they don't do these things by Zoom because everyone knows if you want to save the planet and have people reduce their emissions, you all have to fly on your planes from around the world to one particular country and have 100,000 people there in that city who are using all the hotel rooms, who are eating all the fancy steak dinners, who are consuming all of the resources that are required for a conference of this nature. That is the way you solve the climate crisis. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Well, COP28, it's easy to look at this as being one big giant gab fest. But the problem is that when the countries get together to gab, it comes at a cost to the rest of us. The things that they talk about there are things that are implemented as policy in countries around the world that want to go along with dismantling their economy and their reliance on oil and gas for this weird almighty climate goal. All the while, places like China and India just kind of sit in the room and nod along knowing that they're going to continue to industrialize and build and develop and emit, and they will be the ones that get to benefit when Canada decides that we need to phase out oil and gas. Now, this year, there was a little bit of pushback to this phase out. It's often spoken about by the climate elites as though it's an inevitability. We're just going to get rid of oil and gas. It's not a question of if, but when, and we should do it sooner rather than later. But this time there were some people in the delegations that said, maybe I don't actually want to do that. Maybe I, I mean, there was the one guy who was the president of the conference in the United Arab Emirates who said earlier on, yeah, there's no scientific basis for this phase out. Although as we'll be talking about in a few moments with Mark Morano, uh, he was very quickly slapped for uh, being as honest as he was in that moment. But it's important to understand the ideological outlook that the UN and the people that are running these conferences have. Now, this is where I go back to the very beginning of this, when Simon Steele from the United Nations kicked things off with a very grim picture about how things are. Take a look. We must teach climate action to run because this has been the hottest year ever in humanity so many terrible records were broken and we are paying the price with people's lives and livelihoods we're standing at a precipice facing the global stocktake and we've got two options either we can note the lack of progress, tweaking our current best practices and encourage ourselves to do more at some other point in time. Or we decide at what point we'll have made everyone on the planet safe and resilient. We decide to fund this transition properly, including the response to loss 
and damage. And we decide to commit to a new energy system. If we do not signal the terminal decline of the fossil fuel era as we know it, we welcome our own terminal decline. And we choose to pay with people's lives. Ooh, wow, quite the motivational speaker there. He's a regular Tony Robbins. It's basically, you're all going to die unless we in this room decide to save you. But the only way we do that is by teaching climate action to run. This is like the new UN children's book, See Spot Run, See Climate Action Run, See Climate Action Walk, See Climate Action Crawl. But you, you only get to finish the book if the climate action is running. It needs to be in a dead sprint, which means they need to accelerate all these things they were talking about. No tiptoeing around and saying it's not working. You've got to go faster. You've got to go harder. And again, all of us around the world are the ones that have to pay for it. What they're talking about here is monumental changes. They're talking about wealth redistribution. They're talking about, as they agreed today or yesterday, to a phase out of oil and gas. There was a bit of pushback, a bit of debate about this. They weren't all entirely on board with doing this. But in the draft agreement that all countries, including Canada, signed on to, they said they are going to commit to a transition away from oil and gas, a phase out of oil and gas. Now, this may not be breaking news. Justin Trudeau has used this language in the past, but it certainly re-ups and reiterates that commitment. Now, Stephen Gilbo, the environment minister who's been in Dubai, I didn't know you could travel when you have a, a criminal record, but I guess he could. Uh, you, he's been just downright giddy about this. There was the head of Greenpeace Canada posted this tweet thread that I, I wanted to share with you. Keith Stewart says, uh, is that tang in the post-COP28 morning air from the salty tears of oil lobbyists or from the blood in the water that is their balance sheets weighted down by what are now inevitably stranded assets? He says this is historic. Oh, by the way, still insufficient because they need to do more and uh, need to do uh, more aggressively what they're trying to do now. And then he lauds of all the people there, Stephen Gilbo in particular. Now, Stephen Gilbo, of course, responds to this, has a, a little bit of a Twitter bromance with the climate radical. Uh, Thank you so much. And yes, probably a mix of all of the above. Winky face emoji. Oh, just so cute. Isn't it nice to see climate radicals all singing from the same songbook in this? Well, uh, we're going to talk about this in a bit more detail, but I, I first wanted to bring in Mark Morano, who has gone into the belly of the beast once again. He was in Dubai at uh, COP28. He's been, uh, we had him on last year when he was at what he termed the uh, Charmel Shakedown in Egypt. Mark, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you, Andrew. Happy to be here. I'm, I'm finally back from Dubai, one of the greatest cities I've ever visited, by the way. <laughs> yeah, so last year you uh, rode in on the camel at uh, what you dubbed <laughs> the Charmel Shakedown in Egypt. Today it's, uh, or this time it was Dubai. Uh, what's been the, the overarching theme of it? What was the flavor of the conference this year? I, it was, I, I would say, delusion. Uh, insanity and a complete lack of any basis in grounded reality. So that was the theme. And what I mean by that is they literally are demanding everyone and including the final text say that we need to phase out fossil fuels for the world. They are literally believing their own bullshit. They're believing that solar and wind are going to replace fossil fuels and they need to formally enshrine it now in United Nations climate agreements. It got so bad that the president of the COP pushed back on this with the president, the former president of Ireland, Mary Robinson. 
And he said, of course, there's no science to support that. And he was right. The UN's own documents from ClimateGate, Phil Jones, a lead UN scientist, admitted that the whole net zero 1.5 degree, 2 degrees Celsius temperature goals were pulled from thin air. They're just political goals. But they want to make it sound as though they're apocalyptic scientific predictions. He had to back down from his predictions. Saudi Arabia, if you want to know who the hero of this conference was, Saudi Arabia is the one who said, this is just delusional. We're not going along with this. Guess who was doubling down and pushing us to this renewable replacing fossil fuel? China. China at this conference literally said, uh, literally doubled down and wanted to make sure that the United States relied more on China because China was the one pushing us. If they get us off more and more fossil fuels and more on renewables, guess what? It makes us the once free West more and more dependent on China, which essentially has a monopoly now, either through China and through their African subsidiaries mm -hmm. with underage kids and poor human rights and low environmental standards, all the, all the mining. So that was the theme. It's literally the end of fossil fuels. And then, of course, the secondary themes included things like our vice president, Kamala Harris, showing up and pledging $3 billion plus to the UN Climate Slush Fund. And guess what? This money, guess who the highest attending delegations are historically? African nations, South American nations, the poorest nations are in high attendance at these conferences. Why would that be, you may ask? Very simple. They are out there to suck at the teeth of the United Nations. And here's the thing. I talked to a development activist, Leon Lowe in South Africa at a previous UN climate summit. He said this will money will go to the country's leaders who are best able to keep their citizens locked in poverty. So if you're a socialist dictator, authoritarian in Africa, uh, you are now going to be getting the most UN cash more than other leaders because you can keep your citizens locked in poverty. Aside from that, even the Financial Times thought this was going too far. They had an entire feature article during the Dubai UN Climate Summit about how Western carbon offset companies to assuage us, the white liberal, you know, not liberal, but the white guilt association and the, the wealthy nations was buying up sometimes 25% of land in African nation after African nation to literally set it aside so they can't develop it so white liberals can feel good about themselves in other countries. So we're doubly harming uh, development in African and poor nations in South America. We're paying their leaders, giving them the most money to those, to those who don't develop. And we're stopping them from developing by buying up massive carbon offsets. And sure, it'll give a little bit of cash to the country now, but it's going to hurt them long term. It's just insanity from beginning to end. Let me go back to that uh, comment you alluded to by the president of, of COP. This was uh, Sultan Al-Jabbar, I believe, yes. who uh, comes out representing the UAE and says that, oh, yeah, no, there's no science. It doesn't make sense. This whole phase out of, of oil and gas, which is a, a very consistent position Reasonable. with being uh, the guy who is uh, tasked with handling this file on a very oil rich nation. Last year, uh, the conference was in Egypt. Again, Egypt is not a country that is not uh, uh, making money off of its oil reserves here. I think it has like the sixth largest in Africa or, or something like that. And the UAE and even larger supply. So, yeah. I mean, these countries hosting these summits in the first place, like, is it just paying lip service? Like, are they even true believers in this? No, no. What the way this works is I've been to 18 out of the last 20 since 2014. And I've also been to two UN Earth summits. But the way they do it, they just pick countries. And they usually pick countries that are hostile. Now, we've had it in Poland three times. You may ask, why is Poland hosting a UN climate summit 
pretty relatively close together. It's almost you know, it was like 2008, 2013, 2017, I can't remember the exact, 2018 or something. And the reason they pick these countries is they try to go all around the world. They're going to be going to Australia. They're going to be going to India. But they try to pick countries where they try to woo them in. So they want to give them business. But just hosting a UN climate summit, this was the largest ever. It's 100,000 plus people. So first of all, it's good PR for the UN to these countries. It's a sort of payout saying we're going to bring in an unbelievable amount of business. Think of 100,000. Oh, yeah. Well, when they had it in Glasgow, there like, was not a single hotel room available yes, exactly. in the entirety of Scotland that week. It's, it's the biggest thing going. I mean, yeah. I can't think of any other corporate, World Economic Forum, even I don't even think the who is this. This is probably the largest international conference uh, you know, that I'm aware of. Anyway, 100,000 plus petitions. This was a record. So that's one thing. And then they bring in all the, the the people and they sort of shame the countries. That's what they did with Poland. And I went to, you know, went with Polish miners and the Polish government was never that happy, but they're always willing to host them. So they figured they're having a dialogue. So what happens here is they've had it in the Middle East a couple of times. They've had it in uh, in Qatar, in Doha, a couple of places, a couple other locations in the Middle East. And they're going there because they want to highlight that they can be part of this UN climate summit. And a lot of times the way they get the developing world is they're paying their leaders to come. The way they get the uh, developed world and even the oil rich nations is they're going to woo them in. They're going to give them a lot of money in terms of all this business and they're going to bring them into the community of nations. And it works because, uh, you know, Sultan Al-Jabbar Al literally did not want to fight. Once he made his comments, his spokesman immediately backed down. He backed down. They're not interested. They're interested in the virtue signaling. They may not follow through on it uh, with, you know, even if they make a pledge, they may not follow through an action. But unfortunately, they're still allowing this fraudulent process to go. What I think needs to happen, we need a coalition. I'd call it a clexit. You, you had the Brexit. We need a climate exit from the UN treaty. We need countries to band together and just say, hell no to net zero. It's anti-human. It's insane. It's Soviet style central planning. We're done. We're not le We're not part of this anymore. Donald Trump, of course, tried it, but he did it tepidly. He just withdrew us. He didn't withdraw us from the whole United Nations climate process. He didn't withdraw us from funding the UN panel and all that stuff. We need actually Donald Trump to triple down. Uh, and hopefully if he gets elected, he will. I don't know if he'll get elected, but that's the problem. So what's happened here is all this virtue signaling for decades in the green agenda, they got away with. But now we're hitting where the rubber hits the road, solar wind collapsing. We have at least a dozen offshore wind collapsing in the US, the EV mandates collapsing, all the global automakers saying, no, it's not working. They're piling up on our lots. We're not mm -hmm. going to do it anymore. You have the energy collapse in Europe with, hastened by the Russian war. Now Israeli conflict. All of this is just they can't afford the virtue signal anymore. But the UN knows how this works. It's a campaign cost. So they doubled down in face of all of this insanity. They wanted to phase out of all fossil fuels. And by the way, I went to fashion shows there. Uh, they had red carpet events, sustainable uh, clothing and fashion. I asked the spokesman there at the UN with their keynote speaker about the C40 cities report sponsored by Google, Ikea, funded by Mayor Bloomberg, who was the chairman, about the limit of three new items of clothing per person per year by 2030. And their answer is, well, it depends. If you're getting synthetic clothing, yes. If you're buying, you know, uh, hemp made organic clothing, maybe from the skin of a cockroach, then yeah, you can get more than three. They were just, this was an insane conference. They had children's events, all the usual stuff you would expect, but it, everything is just so much more insane. And the overriding theme, by the way, 
was this bypassing a democracy? Because right before it, the 200 medical journals wanted to declare COVID, a climate a public health emergency. The Biden administration is being urged to do it. What that would do is take this even further out of democracy. Because remember, we didn't vote yeah. to ban gas-powered cars. We didn't vote to ban meat eating. We didn't vote to ban agriculture, restrictions on high-yield agriculture. But it's all just happening because of corporate government collusion through edicts. And if they get a climate emergency, whether it's through the WHO or whether it's even in the United States, it gives Biden 130 new executive powers. NBC News actually said it would give him COVID-like powers, <laughs> similar to what mayors and governors had. Yeah. And he's a lame duck. So this is always a tool on the table. Anyway, that's what the UN wants. It is, a, I call it the Great Reset Summit because none of it had to do with democracy. All of it had to do with rationing energy, food, transportation, freedom of movement so that they could be more in charge. And it was just nuts. And you had King Charles there. You had Al Gore. You had John Kerry. A funny stat. I, I, on John Kerry, though, let, let me bring this up because John Kerry is an example of how ideological this all is. And, yes. and you see the moving goalposts. It used to be about emissions and then it became about temperature. And now it's just about phasing out fossil fuels. So the reason I bring up John Kerry, here you have the oil and gas sector trying to meet them halfway and say, well, we're going to invest in carbon capture. And John Kerry comes out, oh, no, that carbon capture is nothing. I think he called it the great facade. Uh, yes. because he just wants the industry to be obliterated and effectively outlawed. He absolutely does. Uh, John Kerry, first of all, his speech uh, here before the conference was all about shutting down not only U.S. coal, but we had the petition to do the natural gas uh, by U.N. delegates targeting the United States. So they, they take away coal and gas, and we're left literally a whimpering nation begging China for what scraps, begging Venezuela, the Middle East. John Kerry has no problem with any of that because in his mind, ideological mind, he his legacy for the world is going to be saving the planet. And he really thinks that it, or in order to do that, you're going to make you're going to break a lot of eggs to make this beautiful utopian omelet of some kind of world. And he's pushing that. He's also pushing, as you mentioned, carbon capture and storage. And the money going into that is insane. But here's the thing that you have to understand. The Inflation Reduction Act, so-called in the United States, was probably the most evil genius bill that we've ever seen passed by the United States Congress, certainly in the green energy environment. Unlike the President Obama's green stimulus of 2009, which was a, a boatload of money, I think it was like $70 billion, it got dispersed and then it sort of died out. So you had a lot of success stories and then these companies would go bankrupt and disappear and, you know, Solandra, et cetera. Yeah. But the difference with this, and here's the thing, Politico has a whole article. There, no, European nations want to model. The difference with the Inflation Reduction Act, it bakes in for decades green mandates, subsidies, regulations that just keep kicking and kicking and kicking and kicking. So you're going to have companies, governors, legislators, states, everyone just sucking at that teat for decades to come on this money that's going to be completely reauthorized and reauthorized, reauthorized. And it makes the green agenda not go away like we had under Obama once the money runs out, because the money is designed never to run out. And well, this and is the, what the UN the green... used this, this wealth transfer from the yes. West to the South as being a feature and not a bug of this all, did yes. not? Yeah, Otto Edenhofer, who years ago said this was not about environmental policy. This was about redistributing wealth by climate policy. This has nothing to do with environmental policy. I mean, he was very explicit. The whole IPCC basis and the climate treaty basis, this is not about the environment at all. It's about creating what they see as equity 
in the world. Uh, and unfortunately, even though I would say climate skeptics, if you will, are winning, we just had a Nobel Prize winning scientist, Dr. John Clauser, who won the Nobel last year, come out and say climate basically is a, is a he didn't see the word hoax, but he said basically was pseudoscience and it was nonsense. And he went on and the Washington Post actually featured it you know, Nobel winner dissents on climate. I mean, I bet the reporter and editor who allowed that article to go to with that headline has lost their job or been demoted. But none of that matters because they now post March 2020 know the game plan forward. And the game plan forward is not about public opinion. They could care less that recent public polling, and at least in the US, is showing skepticism and reaching new heights. People don't trust the institutions. They could care less about what people don't trust, whether it's public health now or the climate agencies because they have their model. They're gonna bypass democracy. They have corporate government collusion. We now have banks who are joining up saying they're not gonna give car loans to people who wanna buy gas powered cars in working in collusion with the ESG, with the BlackRock, with the United Nations and the World Economic Forum. And so we are citizens facing perhaps something we haven't ever faced this nakedly. They are just doubling down on raw power and bypassing a democracy with corporate government collusion. And that's what this UN conference was celebrating. That's why if you watched it, you were just like, this is insane. They're talking about phasing out fossil fuels. They're talking about billions here. They're talking about Soviet style, central planning for decades into the future with all this net zero. I mean, again, regulations on every aspect of your life down to how many clothes you can buy, to the cars, to your thermostat, to your diets. Uh, the World Economic Forum was there. The World Health Organization was there. It's just incredible. And by the way, one little note is the British Foreign Secretary, Richie Rich, the, as Mark Stein calls him, Richie Sunak, and King Charles all flew th on three separate private jets to the conference. But it's okay because they're important. The same conference, by the way, which CNN coincided an article, literally CNN travel article, and I have it as my headline at Climate Depot, carbon passports uh, are the thing of the future for travel. They're talking about massive restrictions on wow. international travel when we need carbon passports, limits, when you hit your max, you can't travel. We have activists saying under declared climate emergency, you can't just fly whenever you want. It has to be, quote, morally justified. This was all the wow. sentiment at this UN conference. They, they have like the diplomatic passport equivalent of the carbon passport on theirs. It's a very much a, a different rule. Yes. They have a higher limit or no limit at all. <laughs> no well, limit. you did great work there. Glad you made it out alive. Uh, Mark Morano, you can check out his work over at climatedepot.com. Thanks so much, Mark. Thank you. And we also did a protest, uh, which you can go to Climate Depot and see. We did a Just Say No style protest. We blocked traffic and we said no to net zero and no to meat bans. So we did you destroy any priceless art? <laughs> no, we didn't. Uh, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, you have some standards, unlike the, uh, the other folks you're up against. Mark, thanks very much. Thank you, Andrew. Appreciate it. Always, uh, always good to talk to uh, Mark Barano. Actually, I think we have we have the video of his little pro. I, yeah, I think we have the video of the protest, right, Sean? Can we play that? CFACT, in the tradition of just say no to oil, decided to just say no to net zero by conducting a bus blockade at the UN Climate Summit in Dubai.
Stop net zero, save red meat. You know what? I'd vote for anyone that runs on uh, that platform alone right there. Uh, stop net zero, save red meat. Yes, save the red meat. You know all these climate bureaucrats when they go to these conferences are eating a healthy diet of red meat. I'm actually going to be going back to Davos in January uh, with uh, Sean and with our uh, reporter and editor, Cosman Georgia. We're going to be reporting from WEF. And I assure you, they may love writing about and talking about fake meat, but there is absolutely real meat on the menu uh, whenever you go to those uh, swanky Swiss Alpine restaurants over there, as I'm sure there was in Dubai, there was in Egypt, there will next be uh, will be next year in Australia and all the like. So uh, you can catch up with Mark Morano's coverage over at climatedepot.com. Wanted to turn from the global to the provincial, but uh, to further complicate things, the provincial tends to be the national in this particular context. Uh, Ontarians are very, very, very familiar with a guy by the name of Mike Harris. Mike Harris was elected Premier of Ontario uh, just uh, under 30 years ago, back in 1995. And what was interesting about the Harris years is that they're held up as being by so many people in the province, especially teachers and basically just teachers, as being this great villain. I mean, his name is a curse word. But you talk to ordinary people, you talk to conservatives, and Mike Harris is an absolute hero. And I, I think Mike Harris, for a lot of the time, has not really had his story told the way it needed to be. And, and by, by that, I mean, he revolutionized politics in Ontario. He took a, a party, the Ontario Progressive Conservatives, which was always a, a very squishy, moderate, elite party. And he turned it into one that was very grassroots oriented. He had the common sense revolution, a rather legendary roadmap and platform that was unafraid to tackle some very difficult challenges. And the common sense revolution turns 30 years old and Mike Harris's legacy is finally being put in what I think is an appropriate context here in a new book, which has been quite well hyped, which is good for a political book called The Harris Legacy, Reflections on a Transformational Premier. You can see it there and get it on Amazon and other places fine books are sold. It has some fantastic contributions from a number of characters, many of whom will be familiar. And it was edited by my favorite Alistair Campbell. No, not that hack that works for Tony Blair, uh, but the much superior Alistair Campbell, who joins me on the line now. Alistair, good to talk to you. Thanks for being with me today. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. So let's start with the why now, because Mike Harris has for, for decades now been out of public life. Every now and then he may pop up in an interview. But why did you feel this was a, an anthology that 2023 warranted? So I think uh, the urgency of this uh, maybe didn't get felt by others. But during the period when uh, Premier Ford named uh, Mike Harris to be a member of the Order of Ontario, it was his mini tempest in the media teapot. And it became very clear that the only historical legacy that uh, the mainstream media wanted to cover was Walkerton and Ipperwash. And uh, I felt uh, strongly that uh, the real history was being kind of canceled. And so uh, at the side of my desk during COVID, I started recruiting different uh, specialist authors uh, to help me kind of write uh, the true historical uh, record of the time policy area by policy area. And uh, I was able to recruit some fantastic talent from David Frum through Jack Minch through Bill Robson. But I didn't just kind of ask Tories. I asked liberals, I asked Greens, I asked academics, I asked uh, journalists who were nonpartisan. And the 
core takeaway uh, is maybe the most intriguing part of this legacy. It turns out almost nothing he did was reversed. And so uh, maybe all of this kind of mainstream take of, you know, Harris is a brief uh, blip in the otherwise benign progressive trajectory of Ontario politics isn't right. And that in fact, through education and welfare and tax rates, uh, all the way through municipal reform and parkland creation and the protection of the Oak Ridge's moraine, uh, just on a consistent policy area by policy area basis, what Mike did turned out to be permanent. Uh, and we're actually living in uh, Harris's Ontario today. I, I ran as a, a PC candidate in, in the 2018 election. And, and what was always so fascinating is you'd knock on doors and you'd walk up to this giant, giant, giant mansion of a house. I, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but by London, Ontario standards, a mansion. And, you know, the person would come to the door and be like, I'm a teacher and we still haven't recovered from Mike Harris. I'm, I'm, and, and you'd look at, well, you know, your husband looks like he's in the pool back there. And, uh, you know, this house is pretty big. Like, but, but there does seem to be this very revisionist approach that unions, public sector unions have about Mike Harris in particular, which was that, you know, he just decimated them and, and crippled them. And when you say that nothing has been reversed of, of his legacy, I, I guess maybe there, there's a bit of truth that there is still some lingering effect in the public sector from what he did. But, but where does that come from? Because I, I can't think of a politician that still has as much venom 30 years after the fact. I mean, even George Bush, I think, was viewed more favorably by people that hated him more quickly. But Harris never really got that. The uh, intensity of the public sector union resistance to the changes that were implemented during the common sense revolution um, is, was visceral. Uh, and it actually started before Harris. Uh, the uh, NDP government of Bob Ray tried to introduce something called the social contract, which was an effort to save union jobs, but still control government spending. And it ripped that party apart. And in the course of that, I think he discovered he probably wasn't actually an NDP or himself. Uh, so the war began before we got there and it just intensified when we did. Somehow the teachers union leadership convinced themselves they were all Arthur Scargill and uh, Mike was Margaret Thatcher and they were the coal miners. And if they didn't fight back, they would be exterminated. Which of course, given the critical function uh, the public sector uh, teachers unions perform in our system is absurd. Uh, but somehow they've managed to maintain this intensity. The core point in Bill Robson's excellent chapter on education is in fact that uh, Ontario kids' uh, scores on exams relative to other provinces and other countries in the world improved during this time. Uh, and what's lasted? Standardized testing, grade three, grade six, grade nine, published results, mandatory literacy exam before you graduate, all of that component of what was in the Harris uh, reforms of the time, hated by the teachers or not, it's still there. And even when the teachers got what they thought was a more benign uh, regime in McGinty and Wynn, those things were not changed. And nor was the centralized negotiation between the province and the unions, uh, which was a revolutionary part of what Harris did. Uh, it did not go back to negotiation with 78 amateur boards of education uh, up against the strongest and smartest and most sophisticated uh, public sector unions in the world, I think. 
there was a, a time, I mean, if you go back now, you know, 20, 20 some odd years where uh, people were pushing him to move to federal politics and, and Mike Harris w- was being uh, courted to run for the leadership of the Canadian Alliance. Now, I mean, obviously, we I think a lot of people were probably happy with what ended up happening, Stephen Harper winning and, and then eventually merging the parties. But what was it that you think prevented him from trying to really parlay what he had done into in Ontario into something bigger? Because I, I think he did have an opportunity to do something. I mean, even if he didn't end up leading the alliance, he probably could have been a, a federal cabinet minister and had a bit of a different trajectory than he chose to, which was transitioning into relative obscurity after office. Yeah, so I think a couple of thoughts there. First of all, uh, a key contribution of the Harris legacy was three of the most outstanding cabinet ministers of the Harper government, Flaherty. Baird and Clement, mm-hmm. uh, all of whom were blooded in the revolution and made, uh, I think, significant contributions because they had already done big change uh, at uh, at the government level in Ontario. I think, uh, honestly, people underestimated just how hard the job was of implementing that common sense revolution. And when Mike stepped down, when asked if he had any regrets, at that final Queen's Park press conference and he answered, yes, he should have done more faster. Uh, but I think he was genuinely done. Uh, I think he felt like he had uh, come with a mission he'd executed against the plan. As we now know in this, uh, in this book, what he contributed uh, has led to the Ontario that you know, honestly remains one of the most attractive places to move to in the world if you can get here. Uh, and that's a lasting legacy and I don't feel like he Um, needed to do more in his own head. You will also see in this book uh, two excellent contributions on what he did in federal-provincial relations, uh, one by the late Hugh Siegel and one by a former bureaucrat, Craig McFadgen, that shows, in fact, that Mike had a huge impact on the rebalancing of the Canadian Federation itself after the near-fatal experience of the Quebec referendum, and that uh, Mike had already done an awful lot on the federal stage as well without ever having... uh, I think, felt the need to run himself at that level. I, I know you were uh, obviously in, involved heavily in the, the 95 campaign in particular. As your, well, your bio says you were the message guy. Uh, everyone knows titles are, are always a bit murky on, on campaigns. But I, I did want to ask you about his approach to messaging because one of the, the criticisms that I've heard about Mike Harris, and I, I don't know if you would agree with it or not, is that he was so focused on the policy that he he often didn't think about as much the messaging of it and the packaging of that policy. And I'm, I'm curious what your take on that was with your involvement in that campaign. And just in general, a, a 30,000 foot view now that you have the benefit of hindsight on his government. So I think the, uh, the messaging uh, of Harris was uh, actually one of his strengths. Uh, somehow he radiated a kind of a sense of uh, a normal guy uh, who was, you know, tackling big projects uh, and and trying to get things done uh, and then did what he said. Uh, It wasn't just the shock of coming from 30 points behind in six weeks to a landslide majority in 95. What you've got to remember was that in 99, there was effectively a second election, which was really a referendum on the Harris common sense revolution. And he won a bigger majority. Uh, And uh, the messaging of Harris, I think was tight and effective, but you're right. He was a policy um, premier and that's not always uh, the way to win. Uh, Some people can uh, do it with uh, the right image or uh, the right uh, tone. 
uh, I think of a politician who promised sunny ways and you can't remember hmm. much else. Uh, and we may be all paying a price for uh, falling for that. Uh, but in the end, uh, Harris had, I think, excellent messaging and strong policy. And as we're watching the term common sense be uh, given a new uh, lease on life uh, federally by uh, the conservative leader now, I think it's important to reflect on how the brand uh, needs to be connected to content in order for it to be as effective as it was when Mike Harris used it. One of the, the big challenges in, in federal politics uh, for the Conservative Party has always been the, the factionalism. You have to, you know, unite Quebec Tories and Atlantic Canadians and Albertans and uh, rural, red Tory, urban, blue Tory, all of this. Ontario doesn't have as much factionalism. There still is some, and I, I'm curious especially with where he came in the history of the PC party, a, a party that had had the, the much, uh, much discussed uh, dynasty and, and was not really a, a hard line, what we would call blue Tory party. How was he at that party unity factor? How well did he bring his supporters and members behind what he was doing? Well, it's uh, probably one of the more controversial chunks of the book, but the discussion about how he unified the party uh, by winning a uh, a one member, one vote convention, the first of those, uh, uh, was actually critical. He went into that first election in 1990, barely survived, uh, picked up a handful more seats, but was still in third place. But because he had won in a one member, one vote system, he actually had the full support of the party. He did a masterful job between 90 and 95 in bridging uh, the different factions of the party by bringing the top talent from across the different factions into his campaign team. Uh, and then I think uh, allowing that team to create a strategy uh, that worked for his personality, uh, met his demand for policy content, uh, and then allowed the campaign to focus on things that unified conservatives, uh, lower taxes, balancing the budget, um, significant welfare reform, significant education reform, uh, pretty meaty content, but stuff that as conservatives, it spoke to everyone. And then there were some surprises in that that uh, people forget now. We swept the 905. Uh, it turned out that you know mandatory work for welfare was incredibly powerful policy in uh, new immigrant, Hindu, Muslim, Sikh communities that I honestly, I'm not sure we'd pulled accurately on that before because it spoke to their community values in the same way that it spoke mm -hmm. to Ontario's community values. Uh, and uh, what Harris was able to achieve in uh, bringing a whole Ontario together and a whole party together by focusing on stuff that actually uh, works for everyone, uh, except perhaps some teachers, uh, was pretty potent and, uh, and actually can and will work again. I, I was in school during the Harris years, uh, and I remember the teacher just seething as uh, they were handing out those, what were they called, the My Ontario books? These little books that uh, Har the Harris government had printed to give to every student. And in retrospect, as a kid, I didn't really care one way or another. It was just, you know, 10 minutes out of class that we had to do this. But I, I recall that was, again, one of the other things the teachers really uh, didn't like. But again, a, a way to go directly to the people, which is uh, something that we see politicians doing more of now, bypassing the media. Here's a book about our province. <laughs> 
And I think that uh, uh, what we achieved right from the start, uh, putting out the platform a year in advance, we printed two and a half million copies of that platform. Mm -hmm. uh, so you know everybody could read it for themselves, do the math, kick the tires, look under the hood and decide whether they liked it or not. And when he held it up at that debate in 1995 and says, I will resign if I do not keep the promises in this platform, it was incredibly powerful. Uh, and it resonated because there was this kind of deep, visceral distrust of politicians. Uh, and here was one saying, I actually believe this stuff. I will really do this stuff. Uh, and if you don't like it afterwards, you can vote me out. And in fact, in 99, many of the people who voted to reelect him didn't like all of what he had done, but they really liked a politician who uh, honored their uh, vote uh, by doing exactly what he promised. Uh, he was and that special, was, I mean, even, yeah, I mean, even from critics of him, that was one thing I, I've heard, you know, going back to his years say, well, he did what he said he was going to do. Uh, and that's the thing. He had been remarkably transparent about his agenda. Ontarians gave him a mandate and he he very much did it. Well, it was a very, I'll say in the, the canon of Ontario politics, your book, which you edited, was a, a tremendously refreshing read. And I, I know it uh, delves into the policy at times, which for people like me is, is good, but it's important, I think. So uh, the book is The Harris Legacy. You can see it up on your screen in a second there. Reflections on a Transformational Premier edited by Alistair Campbell. Alistair, thank you so much. Really appreciate it and well done on this. Thanks. I appreciate the opportunity to chat. All right. Thanks very much. And that does it for us. I've been uh, telling you this week, we are going to do next week a Letters to Andrew show. You can get your questions in by emailing andrew at truenorthcanada.com. Uh, I'm not going to reply to them this week, so you don't need to resend them. I, I'm going to put them all in a little bundle and we'll do a, a special edition of the show next week in which we will answer some of your questions, however fun, wacky, odd, or off the wall they are. But don't make it like three and a half pages long. I got one of those and I'm like, I, it would take the whole show just to read the questions. So uh, not Nothing good takes that long to say. That's my uh, motto. Well, I've just came up with it now, but maybe it would be a good motto. In any case, we will all have a great time with that next week. Hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. We will see you tomorrow, same time, same place here on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.